Hello, and welcome back to The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. It's Tuesday, May 9th, and we have three topics to go through this week. The first is China's new agricultural management officers who are putting restrictions on crop production around the country. Then we'll discuss a new Reporters Without Borders report that says that China is the second worst country in the world for press freedom. And we'll finish with a note on the PRC's diplomatic moves, including at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in India and the presence of a CCP official who undermined the Sino-British Joint Declaration's promise and who attended the coronation of King Charles III over the weekend. Miles, how are you? Very good, Wilson. Great. So I want to start the conversation today with something that's going on in rural China. We've talked about repression and protests mostly in cities over zero COVID, cuts to healthcare spending, things like that. But in rural China right now, we're seeing the rise of what are called, quote, agricultural management officers, which is an interesting euphemism. So in Hubei province, uh, there are reportedly around 5,000 of these people. And I'm just going to read a notice that went up in a northern village in China about what these agricultural management officers are doing and then get your reaction to it. So the notice is, quote, due to the need to create a civilized environment, the planting of climbing vegetables like beans or melons and squashes in front and backyards is strictly forbidden. So, Miles, what is this initiative and why are local officials going after people's gardens and vegetables? So if you ask people in China, uh, who are the most hated people? Uh, uh, normally, on top of that list uh, is something called the urban management police. So those are people called Chengguan. Those are people for uh, for many, many years have been the chief executioner of the Central Committee's order to clean up the city, to keep what they call the uh, peasant from the nearby uh, suburban rural area uh, from having their own uh, vegetable and fruit stands. And they're very brutal, and uh, they want to keep the Potemkin village image of China uh, being modernized uh, 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 there. So this is basically the problem for years and years. in the uh, rural area, right next to the big cities, uh, many farmers realized to produce traditional sort of uh, uh, stable crops no longer make any, any, any sense. So they turned to commercial crops, mostly vegetables and fruit, and uh, to sell in, in, in the city. This is not really kosher with the Chinese Communist Party. So that's why many of the China's uh, urban uh, confrontations um, uh, in the city took place uh, as a result of uh, of this uh, uh, urban management and police's uh, brutal uh, actions uh, versus uh, and reaction from the from the uh, the peasants so that is the underlying issue i mean you mentioned in the notice say that we have to keep the civilized way of uh, selling vegetables in city that's basically the imply that now this new agricultural management uh, officers this nongguan uh, uh, is something new and this has something to do with the realization, uh, also the failure of the party for years to eradicate all this uh, uh, so-called uh, street stall economy, which is huge in China. Uh, so they realize, you know, the only way to eradicate that problem is not to just kick those guys away from the street, is go after their crops. 
their commercial crops. That's why these agriculture management officers, they are basically cops, and uh, they um, execute the will of the state, go to these, uh, this uh, uh, farmland and destroy the crops that are already there. And so it's, it's caused a lot of disturbances nowadays in China. So why is this a problem for the state? Is it because this is commercial activity taking place outside of state control, or is there something else going on here? This has been a problem for a long time because the state wants to basically control the way uh, the, the, the vegetables and the fruits were circulated. And so, uh, and of course, they want to keep all those farmers, peasants, away from urban centers. So they want to keep the image of China being developed and modernized. So that's the problem. And China as a country, can, it doesn't have enough arable land to feed itself. Is that right? It should have enough arable land. However, uh, China in, in the recent decades has speculated on the land, particularly local government. So they use the land, very, very uh, um, fertile lands uh, for commercial development. The, the government... Uh, sold those uh, those lands to developers and uh, uh, building uh, commercial uh, uh, properties and as well as golf courses and shopping malls. So many peasants basically did not have enough land uh, left. That's problem number one. Problem number two, in connection with that, uh, I think the most important reason right now Xi Jinping is creating this uh, uh, agriculture management police squads all over China. It's not just in Holland, Hebei province, everywhere is because uh, he is uh, considering China's uh, what they call the food security. He believes that the China is now uh, almost like an international pariah. Uh, in Europe, in, in America, and in Asia, China is always regarded as some kind of a rogue nation. So he realizes uh, somehow uh, China may be isolated from the global food supply chain. So that basically freaks him out. That's why he wants to create agricultural uh, production capability. And that's why he ordered the agriculture management officers nationwide to forcefully implement expansion of arable land. Uh, now, many of this uh, land were very tragic, <laughs> were used to, uh, to plant trees to preserve soil in the last several decades. All of a sudden, all those trees, the young trees, should have been uh, ordered then to be destroyed. And then so to create this, uh, this agriculture a terrorist land. And this is kind of, you know, very much like, you know, uh, reminiscent of what's going on in the late 1950s. For the matter of state security and the top leader of the, uh, basically ordered nationwide production of something that is very uh, counterproductive uh, and which end up in disaster. So there's a potential there. So people in China are looking at the Xi Jinping and think this, this method is, uh, is not very realistic. So let's talk, uh, to close out this segment, let's talk about the, the late 1950s, which you just described. Because when I first read this story, I thought about the late 1950s and collectivization and the Great Leap Forward, obviously a terrible famine during that time that resulted in tens of millions of deaths. This current move, obviously not on that scale. There is not a famine happening right now in China, but this definitely is a reminder of that time. So how does how does that play into what's going on, that historical memory of collectivization and of state control over agricultural lands? Xi Jinping is a person deeply, deeply uh, involved in the study of the Chinese Communist Party history. So his reference to the world is very much informed by his understanding of the party history. In the late 1950s, 
Mao Zedong believed that China、uh, must have a great leap forward、uh, to enhance industrial and agricultural production. So he ordered the whole nation to give up whatever they're doing and to、uh, produce backyard uh, uh, steel furnaces. So、uh, in order to、uh, to forge steel in the backyard, you have cut off a lot of trees, cut down a lot of trees. So that's basically created an ecological disaster. Number one. Number two. He also、um, forced the farmers to dramatically, artificially uh, uh, increase the the yields, which also is very unrealistic. And so that's why famine ensued.、Uh, as you mentioned, somewhere around forty five million people were starved to death in、uh, between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen sixty one. Now you mentioned about what Xi Jinping is doing, forcing the farmers to cut down the trees to、uh, artificially hype the yields of the main staples, basically rice and wheat. That's Has exactly the same impetus as Mao Zedong、uh, did in 1950s. So this is a potentially very dangerous and a very foolish uh, uh, move. Uh, many people, uh, commentators uh, uh, in Asia and particularly even inside China,、uh, are making this point. So let's talk about something else that's reminiscent of China of decades and decades ago, and that's the state of the information space. How many commentators there are? How freely information is flowing? Because on May third, Reporters Without Borders published the twenty-first edition of an annual index, the World Press Freedom Index.、Um, this year, Norway ranked as the first for the seventh year running as the most free press. Ireland was second, then Denmark, and the last three countries. Are all in Asia? There was Vietnam at 178th place, China at 179th place, and in last place, North Korea. So this is pretty staggering. The second most populous country in the world is the second worst place for journalists. So what is going on in China, particularly over the last couple of years, that has earned it this terrible spot? Reporters Without Borders is the world's largest uh, uh, press freedom tracker. So their、uh, reports. Uh, has great authority on this subject matter. If you look at the three countries、uh, that ranked at the bottom, Vietnam, China, and North Korea, there's something in common. That is, they're all communist countries, and that's why press freedom is the most systematically repressed、uh, in communist countries. Because communist countries assumes total control、uh, of press by the government. So、uh, China has been consistently ranked at the bottom,、um, either brought in、um, fourth, brought in third, or brought in、uh, this year is brought in、uh, second from the bottom. So this year's report is particularly poignant.、Uh, the RSF said、uh, China is the world's biggest jailer of journalists and one of the biggest exporters of propaganda contents. So China's、uh, press freedom、um, index is so low. It's not only、uh, reflecting how、uh, repressive it is against journalists, but also is how offensive、uh, the Chinese government has been in providing disinformation and、uh, propaganda contents worldwide. And、uh, you know, right now, the known journalists we know that have been、uh, that have been jailed、um, in China is over one hundred. And uh, virtually uh, all major media outlets in China are the mouthpieces、uh, of the、uh, Chinese Communist Party. And every day, every day, the Ministry of Propaganda of the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee issues a guideline telling all media outlets in China what issues should be censored and how the editorial angle should be. 
that is a very systemic. And so on top of that, virtually all meaningful international journalists were either censored or kicked out. All major U.S., for example, U.S.-based newspapers, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, you don't have a permanently cre uh, credentialed uh, journalist based in in China. So they have to rely upon Chinese nationals as a stringer for them. Especially since COVID started, that's true. That's right. So for those Chinese stringers and uh, Chinese nationals, they are uh, under even much harsher uh, surveillance, and many of them are jailed and have been tortured. This is uh, basically a, a, a very uh, systemic uh, effort. So you talked about repression, you talked about propaganda. I want to get into a third category, which touches on a little bit of what you just, just discussed, and that's censorship, because the media environment in China is extremely difficult. There's the Great Firewall that, pre that prevents Chinese nationals from accessing foreign media uh, and international news. So what is it, what is it like on the ground uh, for Chinese nationals who are trying to figure out what's happening in the rest of the world to get uncensored information? Uh, three major things. Number one, it's extremely uh, difficult to get the information from outside China uh, because the control and surveillance is so total. However, due to the massive economic engagement with the free trade uh, world, so you have some kind of windows, uh, very narrow windows, uh, by some people who are working, who are associated with the foreign uh, companies, for example. They can use VPNs to get on Twitter, to get on Facebook and Google. So for those people, the government makes sure, makes sure that uh, you can basically get to know a lot of information, but uh, you definitely cannot really disseminate those information. And the government uh, makes sure that you understand the consequences of, <laughs> of, uh, of doing something that uh, they don't want you to do. Another aspect of that is uh, internet obviously uh, uh, created a kill switch for the Chinese government to control you. Every single Chinese national who would like to be a journalist must must upload uh, some apps that will track you. The government just tells you, in order to be credentialed, you have to really uh, uh, apply those uh, those uh, those apps. One of them is called the Xue Xi Changguo, which is just sort of uh, learning from the strong country. Literally, that means. So that's basically a government tracking app uh, uh, if you want to do journalism in China. On the other hand, technology is a double-edged sword for the Chinese government as well, because uh, many people who know the basics of internet security, they can sneak out. So that's why you have a lot of people who call themselves the wall climbers. That is, uh, they climb over the, the Great Firewall and go to the outside and to get the right information. Also, there is a, a lot of uh, wall-busting uh, apps developed from outside and you can actually you know, penetrate into the Great Firewall. And I, I might also say uh, some other uh, development that might pose a serious challenge to Chinese Great Firewall, particularly uh, Starlinks. That's the Elon Musk's uh, uh, global satellite Wi-Fi system. So, um, uh, so we'll see. So we're going to close out this week with a conversation about the People's Republic's new diplomatic moves around the world. Uh, so let's start off with a conversation about a meeting that happened last week, a meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, listeners may remember the SEO from last September when Xi Jinping visited Samarkand for his first foreign trip since COVID. He met with Vladimir Putin there. And for some background, Russia and China founded the SEO in 2001. Uh, it includes 
Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, India, Pakistan, uh, Iran, and Belarus may join pretty soon. This meeting took place in India. India also has the G20 presidency this year. And it was an interesting meeting, just the group of countries that it brought together. So, Miles, what happened in Goa last week? I think China for decades uh, has uh, had a strategic misconception. That is, uh, 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 China firmly believes the world's biggest problem is the United States. So the world basically is, is uh, summarized into a verse, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. So China, uh, a primary diplomatic goal is to, to lead the rest of the world against the United States. That has been going on for decades. Uh, I say this is the misconception because uh, China has spent a lot of efforts, a lot of time and resources on some of the regional alliances China has tried to dominate to counter the U.S.-dominated international system. For example, you mentioned Shanghai Corporation Organization, SCO, and the BRICS, uh, and several AIIB. The, or you can all group together. The problem is that uh, uh, the rest of the world is very complicated. If the world did not have the United States being the leader, the world would be in total chaos. Uh, that's just the reality. So even within some of the regional groups that China tried to dominate, like SCO or BRICS, not everybody is with China. India and China has, have enormous problems uh, at the border on, on, on some other issues. Even Russia and China share very different strategic objectives. And let alone, uh, you know, Brazil and uh, South Africa. Those countries uh, at least have some kind of a basic frameworks of democracy. China is a totally different country. In the end, the Chinese diplomatic moves uh, is going to be futile unless the regime changes itself into a, 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 a free and democratic country. So in the long run, I remain very optimistic that the, the U.S.-led international system will prevail. That's that's very good here. But do you think that this this move that they have through organizations like the SEO, it seems like they're trying to create alternatives to bodies like the G7, say, maybe the maybe the G20. But you don't think that this is an appealing alternative because China has isolated itself so much and it doesn't provide sort of compelling leadership, even even though India hosted this. And the Indian foreign minister uh, made some statements that kind of went in the vein of um, what people are calling multi-alignment. So continuing to buy weapons from Russia, say, while siding with the United States on some security issues against China. You don't think that this is that this is an order that is an, a compelling alternative to the U.S.-led one? Well, China is not a country that has credibility to be global leader, to be very blunt. You take India, for example. China said, you know, hey, we, we oppose the United States intervention in all the places. The U.S. is a source of all the troubles globally. And the U.S. is, uh, is instrumental in creating the war in, uh, in Europe and like Ukraine in particular. And uh, so we, we, we call everybody to respect the sovereignty and, and independence. That sounds very hollow because China is the country that does not respect the neighbor's sovereignty at all. Yeah, has disputes with every one of its neighbors. That's right. So, so you don't have a credibility. And China also does not have a history of being an honest broker. Um, everything China involved, um, it, it always served China's self-interest. Uh, and for example, the six-party talks with, uh, to solve the North Korean nuclear problem, it's basically futile. So uh, it's going to be very difficult to see, to imagine China could create a regional alliance 
that uh, uh, would replace the alliance of democracies such as G7. I want to close out on uh, something that was a reminder of those values, and that was uh, the coronation over the weekend of King Charles III of the United Kingdom. So everyone saw the ceremony, but there was an interesting angle in Sino-British relations as well. So King Charles, when he was the prince in 1997, uh, attended the ceremony where the British handed over Hong Kong. And the PRC sent a representative to his coronation, and that was Vice President Hong Zeng, the former head of Beijing's central leading group on Hong Kong and Macau affairs. So, Miles, what was the significance of Vice President Zeng, of Vice President Hong Zeng being there? Now, Hong Zeng, if I uh, memory, I mean, if my memory serves uh, uh, correctly, Hong Zeng is still under official U.S. government sanction for his role mm-hmm. in in repression in Hong Kong. I think it's a mistake for the British to invite him. And British uh, did not invite uh, any head of state, any leader from Iran, from Russia, from other uh, uh, dictatorships. And China is given special treatment. This basically is a mistake. I hope. Uh, I mean, of course, as a result, I mean, this uh, uh, British royalty is facing a lot of criticism um, uh, by the British uh, uh, political um, crowd as well as as, uh, as British people. So. Uh, when we sanction someone for violation of human rights, and that's a value issue, right? So, so it's not just a transactional economic issue anymore. On the other hand, I understand the British Foreign Secretary met with Han Zheng, and I think the issue of human rights and Hong Kong, Xinjiang were discussed. That's that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly follow that uh, more closely over the coming months. Thank you so much for the conversation, Miles. Looking forward to another episode of the China Insider with you next week. Okay, looking forward to it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on The China Insider.